Welcome to Work Life Confidential with your host, Ken Dolan Delvecchio. Work Life Confidential gets to the heart of uncomfortable, sometimes taboo topics. Bosses and coworkers behaving badly, other workplace stresses, gender, race, money, and their effect on everything that happens at work and in your life outside of work. Together, we'll find the answers you've been looking for. Now, here is Ken Dolan Delvecchio. Welcome to Work Life Confidential. I'm Ken Dolan Del Vecchio. We live in a democracy, right? Well, how is it then that we spend most of our waking hours within workplaces that are anything but democratic? We may be lucky enough to work within a benign dictatorship, one might say, if we're lucky, and an absolute madhouse if we're not. And for most of us, Maybe our workplace falls somewhere in between. A friend of mine, by the way, worked for years in a multinational corporation whose CEO was renowned for throwing his shoe at people when he disagreed with them. It is the exception indeed, however, to work within an organization guided by worker-elected leaders toward mutually agreed-upon goals and to receive your fair share of the proceeds of your work. A democracy at work, in other words. Now, I realize that I say this and I'm breaking a taboo because we're never supposed to even approach criticizing the capitalist system because that's what I'm doing. But this show is all about replacing what goes unsaid with critical examination. We're all about courageous, critical thinking here. So here I go, breaking the bigger taboo by saying that we need to not only criticize capitalism, but take it one step further and say that taboo word with the big circle, a big red circle around it and the slash through it, Marxism. A red taboo. I guess that's a little bit of a pun, not intended. Let me introduce my guest, who I'm thrilled to have with us today, Richard D. Wolf. PhD is Professor of Economics Emeritus at the University of Massachusetts in Amherst. He is currently a visiting professor in the Graduate Program in International Affairs of the New School University in New York City. He's taught at Yale, the University of Paris Sorbonne, many other educational institutions as well. Professor Wolf has authored numerous books, including Capitalism's Crisis Deepens and Democracy at Work, a cure for capitalism. These and many of his other publications examine the global crisis in capitalism and describe sustainable, democratic, and socially just solutions. Dr. Wolf regularly gives public lectures and maintains an extensive schedule of media interviews. He was named America's most prominent Marxist economist by the New York Times Magazine. He is co-founder of the nonprofit Democracy at Work, Professor Wolf's weekly show, Economic Update with Richard D. Wolf, is syndicated on over 70 radio stations nationwide and available for broadcast on, spe- on free speech TV. Dr. Wolf holds degrees from Harvard, Stanford, and Yale. His online points of contact you can learn more about him at rdwolf, W-O-L-F-F dot com. Also at democracyatwork.info. And you can go right to his show, Economic Update, 
with a slash economic update added on. On Facebook, he's at Richard D. Wolf and at Economic Update. And you can follow him on Twitter at Professor Wolf. Welcome, Professor Wolf. It's a privilege to have you with us. Thank you very much. I'm very glad to uh, speak with you. So here we are. We are a society, supposedly a society where we love democracy, and yet we have embraced this system that puts others in control of our work, our pay, our job security, the impact of our organization's work on the larger environment. How did that happen? Well, you know, it's a wonderful story of promises, dreams, sincere hopes, but also failures and betrayals. Let me give you a, th- uh, a, a thumbnail sketch, if yep. I could. The, the system that, at least in Europe, predates capitalism's arrival was feudalism, a system in which the production of goods and services was organized in such a way that there were two groups, lords, one was called, and serfs, the other was called. Lords were the people in charge. They ran the businesses, the manors, they were called the farms. And the mass of the working people were called serfs. They were not slaves in the sense that they were owned by anybody. They were free of slavery, but they were thought to go with the land on which they were born. So that if you were a serf, uh, then your children would be a serf automatically, just like if you were a lord, the same would apply to that status. And that system existed in Europe at least a thousand years. Uh, People lived and died and grew inside that system. But like all economic systems the world has ever seen, eventually, having been born and having evolved over time, that system died. It fell apart and it was replaced by a new one. And that new one came to be called, after a while, capitalism. And it was brought in particularly by the American and French revolutions. In other words, feudalism didn't die just on its own. It was helped over the line from life to death by angry people who had had enough of it. Americans did not want to live in the feudalism presided over by King George III, and the French masses did not want to be governed by Louis XIV or the Sixteenth anymore either. And so a revolution happened, and in the enthusiasm of the revolution, and here comes the important part, the devotees of this new system, the ones happy to see feudalism go and even happier to see capitalism replace it, made a promise. And the promise was this. In France, the slogans of the French Revolution were liberty, equality, fraternity. In other words, getting rid of feudalism and bringing in capitalism would bring us human freedom, human equality, the kinds of things you also see written down in the Declaration of Independence in our country and so on. Here in the United States, not only did we subscribe to what I just said, but we added something else, that capitalism would bring in democracy. No longer 
Would people be ruled, for example, by a hereditary king, as we had been as a British colony, but instead everybody, or at least a good part of the society's adults, would have one person, one vote, and we would be governed only by the consent of the governed, us as people, democracy. And so this new capitalism replaced the old feudalism, bringing with it the promise of liberty, equality, fraternity, and democracy. But the problem was, and the problem remains, yes, we got capitalism. Lords and serfs are gone. Employers and employees have replaced them. We don't have the old slave system, masters and slaves. We don't have the old feudal system, lords and serfs. We have capitalism, employers and employees. But the problem is, while we got the capitalism, we did not get what those who were in favor of it promised would come with it. We don't have equality, nothing remotely like it. We don't have liberty for the vast majority of people, for example, around the world, who don't have enough to lead a minimally decent life. We certainly don't have democracy, and we certainly do not have brotherhood or sisterhood or anything close to it, nor does it look like it's coming anytime soon. And let me jump in, if I may, and ask you, you have said if you lived with a person as unstable as capitalism, you'd have left them long ago. Can you talk about that? Because the system persists even in light of all of the problems that you're outlining. Yeah, the the instability of capitalism, for, for those of us that are critics, has always been a puzzle, and you've put your finger right on it. Here's the history. Every four to seven years on average... Wherever capitalism has settled in to become the dominant economy, which is virtually global now, there's been an economic downturn. Now, some of them are short and shallow, but others of them, like the Great Depression of the 1930s or the doozy that broke in on us in 2008, are long and deep. Indeed, Wall Street is a flutter right now as we speak with the recognition that the last downturn was in 2008 and 9, and if you use the four to seven year average, well then we're due for one right now, or any day now, or any month now. Nobody can know exactly when they hit, or how bad they'll be, or how long they'll last. But yes, we live in an extraordinarily, regularly unstable system. So that I like to make the joke to my students that if you lived with a person as unstable as this system has everywhere proven to be, you would have left long ago. And the equivalent to leaving an economy is doing what our forefathers and foremothers did, which is changing to a new system that wouldn't display that kind of instability. And I know that that you've also 
talked about the mind-bending inequality. And I guess my question is, we're intelligent people. We see this happening. We have lived experience of it, as you describe, every four to seven years. Why do we believe the endless stories about this time we're going to fix it, this time it's going to be stable, this time everybody's going to benefit? Why Why do we buy it? I don't think the truth of it is, based on my years as a teacher, I don't really think people buy it. I think you're right that we all kind of know better. We all can go to that part of every town or city in America where the rich people lives live. You can see that neighborhood right away. You can distinguish it right away from the places where the poor people live and, and everybody in between. There's no mystery here, and it's been that way for as long as anyone listening to this program has been alive. We've had one president or Congress after another promising to eradicate poverty. They've never done it. We've had one after another promise to eradicate this business cycle, these depressions and recessions. None of them have achieved it. So we kind of know it's not as though it's hidden. So my suspicion is that the answer to your question is the following. Not only do we know that the system is unstable, not only do we know that it produces and reproduces poverty at just the same efficiency that it produces and reproduces wealth at the other end, we also know that this is a system that is difficult to change, that the people who run it Those at the top are not interested in, not sympathetic to, not warm about change and criticism, as you pointed out in opening today's program. So I think most people bite their tongues, look the other way, pretend they don't see because of the fear. And that's really what I think it is, of the difficulties, of the pain, of the risk of being clear and honest and saying, if we really want liberty, equality, brotherhood, and democracy, capitalism is not the way to go about it because it hasn't been able to deliver despite 300 years since it made those glowing promises. So, so it's really about power. It's really about power and the, the understanding that the people who hold the power within this economic system are not in any way interested in changing. That, that's what I, I take away as sort of the headline. But, but aren't we supposed to be the land of the free and the home of the brave? Why, why aren't more people talking about this? Do you, do you think it's coming? Do you think there's another wave of, of people demanding it, more equality changes in the system? I, I just wonder because of the extraordinary chasm that there is now between those who are at the top and those who are really struggling. Well, ironically, it's precisely that chasm that makes me answer your question with an enthusiastic yes. And let me make it very personal. I was born in the middle of the United States, my hometown where I was born, Youngstown, Ohio. Not exactly in the middle, but pretty close. I've lived here all my life. I have white and gray hair now. I've been around (laughs) a long time. And I can assure you, 
having been a college teacher as my job most of my life, this is the time in American history where I see more questioning, more criticism of capitalism than I have ever seen in my lifetime. And I spend a good bit of time with my colleagues, left-wingers, right-wingers, and folks in the middle. And we don't agree on how we got into the situation, and we don't agree on how to get out of it. But to our amazement, we all agree on the following sentence. This is the most difficult, dangerous period of American economic history that any of us have ever lived through. The threats, the dangers, the risks, and at the same time, the instability, the inequality, that's an explosive mix. And I think, whatever you think of Mr. Trump, his, let's call it, unorthodox methods are themselves a reflection. People in a, in a calm time don't elect folks like Mr. Trump, which is why we didn't for so long. People who are upset, people who have a sense that things are falling apart, people who feel in danger. And I'm not commenting on whether they're right or wrong about all of this, but they feel it as a daily experience that their children are facing conditions that are upsetting them, prospects for jobs and incomes that are downright depressing for millions of people. These are all symptoms, honestly felt and correctly perceived symptoms of something terribly wrong. And among the reactions to that, you do have, to use your words, questions, criticisms, let me be, again, very personal. Up until six, six, seven years ago, I would occasionally be invited to go on to a radio or television program to offer my criticisms of capitalism, because to make it real simple, I think the human race can and should do better. I think that it's my job as a citizen to question all systems, education system, transportation system, you name it, to find the problems, find the weaknesses, and make it work better for people. I think that's all of our jobs as citizens, but I don't exempt the capitalist system, the economic system, from criticism the way so many Americans do. I find that shameful and a big loss for us. So I can assure you that having been only occasionally invited to articulate my criticisms, Ever since 2008, my life is completely different. I give a public interview three, four times a day, seven days a week. You're the third one today because people are interested now in a way they never were in my lifetime in what's wrong with the system. Why is it this way? What can we do about it? And these are deeply felt, intensely articulated questions. And for me, that's a sign of economic health and a sign of a society beginning, and boy is it overdue in America, to face up to its problems, to face up to what has not worked out, and begin to seriously consider what has to be done to realize the objectives that we say 
we are committed to. And we're going to pause right there for a break. We'll come back and we'll talk about what are some of the possibilities for solutions. What can we do? We'll be right back. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Maybe you're putting together an event and need a keynote speaker who makes it comfortable to talk about the most challenging subjects, mental health, race, gender, and workplace violence among them. A speaker who can give detailed how-to guidance based on decades of experience as a corporate executive, human resources professional, and psychotherapist. Or maybe you find yourself getting ready for an important presentation, meeting, or conversation and wish you had an expert advisor to help you prepare. A professional who will help you script what you'll say and plan for what comes next. Ken Dolan Del Vecchio is available to speak at your event on workplace or relationship subjects. He's also a trusted advisor, consultant, and coach to business leaders and others. Visit GreenGateLeadership.com to learn more and get in touch. That's GreenGateLeadership.com. As a business professional, you know there is no greater challenge than keeping the people around you focused, engaged, and productive. We all have situations in our lives that rob us of our most important resource, attention. The key to dealing with the distractions and still being our best is resilience. We can't always avoid challenging situations, but we can make sure we bounce back. FEI, the workforce resilience expert, is the leader in helping your workforce be their best selves. We have a range of services to strengthen well-being, enhance culture, empower safety, and manage crisis. From the most personal problems to crises on a global scale, our experience can help you meet any challenge. If you're working to keep your workforce focused, engaged, and productive, contact FEI Workforce Resilience at 1-800-987-1948 or visit feinet.com. FEI the workforce resilience experts become our friend on facebook post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline visit facebook.com forward slash voice america you are listening to work life confidential it's time to hear your voice call into our program today at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to Ken at GreenGateLeadership.com. Now, back to Work Life Confidential. Here again is Ken Dolan Del Vecchio. Welcome back. We're speaking with Professor Richard Wolf who is the author of many books and publications, most recently, Capitalism's Crisis Deepens, and also somewhat recently, his classic, Democracy at Work, A Cure for Capitalism. And we were talking about the importance of speaking about the difficulties with this system and challenging it. And my question for you, Professor Wolf, is what can people do? What are people doing? to try to create a better system or at least a better life for themselves and the people they work with? Well, here's a, an example that may uh, surprise you. Uh, in recent years, I have had the following experience quite a few times. I'm called in because a successful business 
let's imagine a hypothetical Mr. and Mrs. Smith. Uh, they started a business 30, 40 years ago. They built it up. Uh, it's become quite successful. It has, say, 350 employees. But they have now reached their age when they'd like to retire. Their children have gone on to other lives, so they don't have the business to leave to them. Uh, and they are very concerned about what to do. They know virtually all the 350 people they've hired. Those folks come from the same community. Uh, they've lived through a very similar history, etc. So they don't want to close the business because that would be a disaster for those 350 families. They don't want to sell the business to another company because who knows what that other company is likely to do. In a sense, they don't want to leave the business to another capitalist owner for fear that that owner will not share the commitment, the loyalty, the concern for the workers and the community that relies on those businesses and jobs, that collects important taxes from that business. They don't want to leave that to what? Somebody else who may not share their view. They don't know what to do until we arrive and we say to them, hey, what you're really saying is you'd like to do something with the business you created that ensures its survival as something that is a resource in this community and is a secure livelihood for hundreds of families. And there's really only one way to do that. Convert it into a worker co-op. Sell the business, not to another company, not to anonymous shareholders, but sell it to the workers themselves so that they run it as a democratic workers co-op. If you do that, you will save the business. You will keep the business here since those 300 folks are not going to vote to move to China or anywhere else for all the obvious reasons. They keep their jobs. They have, if anything, a greater vested interest in the success of the company now that they are owner-operators of it than they had before when they were just workers in it. In other words, the problem that capitalism presented to you, and you're a successful business couple, is actually best solved by the transition I just described into a worker co-op. And all I would say to you is that would be a better way forward for all American companies. I mean, we do take it seriously that democracy is the best way to go. Government of anything should be by the consent and the democratically participating consent of the governed. That's why we don't let the mayor or the governor or the president be in those powerful positions unless we vote to put them there. Well, if it's good for politics, somebody has to explain to me, and no one has ever done it, why it wouldn't be a very good idea in the enterprise as well. Make so now, yeah. so Professor Wolf, you, you talked about a kind of transition that I've heard 
the Labour Party in the UK is supporting and in fact suggesting that the government can loan to workers who are seeking to to take on the kind of the kind of new co-op that you're describing is there support in the United States for that is it is it something that a group of workers could readily get financing for well the answer is yes and no the yes part is it's already happened i mean there is a widespread uh, movement in America, it's been going on for decades, for workers to buy out the owners, the private owners of businesses and convert them either into worker-owned enterprises, the so-called ESOP program, or to go the further step and not only have the workers own them, but have the workers run them in a democratic way, which is what we mean by worker co-op. That's the yes part. The no part is all of this tends to happen under the radar. As you put it, corporate uh, people rarely discuss it, rarely uh, show it to one another, rarely analyze its pros and cons. I'd say never, actually. I'd say never. never. Uh, England, it's quite different. Europe is very different because in places like Germany and Italy and England, worker co-ops are a much more commonly encountered kind of business. They're not as rare as he and here. And let me spell out what you mentioned before. Uh, Jeremy Corbyn, he's currently the leader of the British Labour Party. According to every poll now run in England, the Labour Party will win the next election and Mr. Corbyn would then become the Prime Minister, hold the position that Theresa May holds right now in the United Kingdom. If that happens, as it is the polls suggest it will, that party is committed to the following. They will pass a law immediately upon taking over the government. The law will go as follows. Any business in England can continue in the way it is. But if it reaches a point where it either wishes to close or it wishes to move to another part of the world or it wishes to sell itself to another business or it wishes to go public to issue shares, the law will require it to give something called the right of first refusal to its own workers to buy out the company and convert it into a co-op. If the workers don't want to do that or can't agree on doing it, well, then the owner will be free to pursue all those other possibilities. But if the workers want to do it, then the government business will have to get a fair market appraisal of what it's worth and sell it to its own workers. And when the question is asked, well, where would the workers ever get the money? It's at that point that Mr. Corbyn and the Labour Party smile and say the government of Great Britain will lend that money to the workers because of its commitment to build a major worker co-op segment of the economy in Britain in order that the British people be able to see all around them and to evaluate the old capitalist, hierarchical, top-down kind of enterprise versus the worker democratic co-op enterprise so that England can make a proper democratic choice about what mix of 
types of enterprise it wants to have as its society. That's real democracy. And my guess is that if we can explain what the British are already doing to the American working people, they will go in a very similar direction. Let me ask you, and thank you so much for that that description of the of where they they appear to be going in the UK and where the path may lead here. If if we have listeners who are listening to this and saying, "Boy, I wish I worked in a co-op. I wish that I worked in a system that was democratic during my nine to five, but." I work in your typical workplace in this capitalist system. Do you have recommendations to, to help them maybe take steps or, or just begin to, to move forward in a, in a way that feels more livable, I guess? Absolutely. I would, get, I would recommend several things. One, there are worker co-ops that have been in existence for a long time. I'm going to mention one in a minute. The information about them is readily available. You can visit them. They welcome people who come and want to see what this is like precisely because they'd like to move to such an enterprise, change their own workplace so it's more like that, etc. There are co companies inside the United States that are worker co-ops, and there are companies outside. And as I say, there's lots of literature and it's easy uh, to visit them. Likewise, here in the United States, there are highly specialized, skilled firms of accountants and lawyers and architects and economists who have long experience helping businesses make these transitions. For example, in the story I told you, Mr. and Mrs. Smith, if they sold the company um, to the workers, those workers would probably hire one of these companies to help them make the transition using what they've learned from previous transitions that they've assisted on. Anyone who goes to our website and communicates with us, website's easy to remember, democracyatwork.info. Communicate to us, we will act as in-betweens to connect interested workers with those kinds of specialists. And now for an example, I'll give you two. One is in Spain, one is in Italy. I could have given you American examples, but they're more developed in Europe than they are here, so it might be a little bit more advantageous. First, the one in Spain. It's called the Mondragon Cooperative Corporation, and it's located in the small uh, Spanish city called Mondragon in the foothills of the Pyrenees Mountains that separate Spain from France. It began in 1956 when a local uh, parish priest, Father Arismendi by name, gave a speech to his local parish in that city saying, uh, we are a very poor part of Spain. We are all in this room unemployed, except for me, I'm the priest. But I know that if we wait for some capitalist to come here and give us a job, we will all die of old age before that happens. Everybody giggled, and then he said, look, the only way we're going to have work 
is if we become our own employer. In other words, let's set up a worker co-op. And Father Arismendi, with six local workers, began one. Now fast forward to 2018, our present moment. That company has grown over the last 60 years. It now has over 100,000 employees. It is the seventh largest corporation in all of Spain. And it is a family of about 250 worker co-ops, some in agriculture, some in industry, some in manufacturing, some in services. Every one of them is run democratically, one person, one vote, in each of those enterprises. Let me give you just a couple of examples of how they work. They all get together and they evaluate once a year the supervisors, the managers. The managers and the supervisors are hired by the workers who, after they evaluate them, either keep them or fire them. In other words, unlike a capitalist enterprise where the managers and supervisors hire the workers, it's the other way around. That is totally upside down, isn't it? Right. Think about it. <laughs> Here's another example of what they do. They have meetings two or three times a year where they discuss and decide on wages and salaries. And they've had a, by the way, they've had a rule. And the rule's been in effect for years. The richest, highest paid person in Mondragon cannot earn more than eight and a half times what the lowest paid worker does. And the reason we don't want, they say, great inequality in our society. Well, in the United States, the average ratio of a CEO to the lowest paid is in the neighborhood of 300 to one, not eight and a half to one. If you want to do something about inequality, these worker co-ops like Mondragon in Spain show you how to do it and to do it very successfully. Last example. In the province of Emilia-Romagna, which is a part of Italy, 40% of the economy of that region is worker co-ops. It's the most densely worker co-op economy anywhere in Europe. It's been that way for decades. The people in Emilia-Romagna want co-ops to be a part of their daily lives. A choice when you decide where to work and a choice when you decide from whom to shop, to buy. And they have a long history and both Mondragon in Spain and the co-ops in Emilia-Romagna are well organized happy to take you on a tour where you can ask any worker any question to find out why they preserve this system, why they like it, why they prefer it to the capitalist system. If Americans weren't frightened, they would want to know these things, not necessarily to be persuaded, but at least to understand what the virtues and flaws and strengths and weaknesses are why people not so different from you and me would want and choose to go in this direction. And for me, because I take seriously the commitment to liberty, equality, fraternity, and democracy, 
For me, the worker co-op is the way to go because, frankly, I don't believe you can have a real political democracy if you don't have it sitting together with, it being partnered with an economic democracy as well. And I see the flaws of our democracy in America, the power of money in politics, for example, as a direct result of not having the democracy in, in the economy and seeing it unravel what democracy we tried to establish in our politics. Well, Professor Wolf, it has been a great pleasure to be with you. I know that you need to leave us in just a moment. I want to direct our listeners to where they can find more information about Professor Richard Wolf. Again, you can visit him at his website, which is rdwolf with two Fs dot com. You can visit him at democracyatwork.info, where you will see his weekly program economic update on Facebook. He's at Richard D. Wolf and at Economic Update. And you can follow him on Twitter at, at P-R-O-F-W-O-L-F-F, Professor Abbreviated Wolf. Thank you so much for spending time with us. I will hope that your busy schedule allows you to come back and speak with us another time. I would be glad to because, to be honest with you, programs like this that explore these kinds of issues that are willing to challenge some of the prevailing taboos that are long overdue for challenging. This is a very important public service you perform, and I would be glad to be part of it again in the future. I will hold you to that. Have a good okay. afternoon. Fair enough. <laughs> and, you too. Thank you. And we're going to go to break now. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. As a business professional, you know there is no greater challenge than keeping the people around you focused, engaged, and productive. We all have situations in our lives that rob us of our most important resource, attention. The key to dealing with the distractions and still being our best is resilience. We can't always avoid challenging situations, but we can make sure we bounce back. FEI. The Workforce Resilience Expert is the leader in helping your workforce be their best selves. We have a range of services to strengthen well-being, enhance culture, empower safety, and manage crisis. From the most personal problems to crises on a global scale, our experience can help you meet any challenge. If you're working to keep your workforce focused, engaged, and productive, contact FEI Workforce Resilience at one 800 987-1948 or visit feinet.com FEI, the workforce resilience experts. Maybe you're putting together an event and need a keynote speaker who makes it comfortable to talk about the most challenging subjects, mental health, race, gender, and workplace violence among them. A speaker who can give detailed how-to guidance based on decades of experience as a corporate executive, human resources professional, and psychotherapist. Or maybe you find yourself getting ready for an important presentation, meeting, or conversation and wish you had an expert advisor to help you prepare. A professional who will help you script what you'll say and plan for what comes next. Ken Dolan Del Vecchio is available to speak at your event on workplace or relationship subjects. 
He's also a trusted advisor, consultant, and coach to business leaders and others. Visit GreenGateLeadership.com to learn more and get in touch. That's GreenGateLeadership.com. You are listening to Work Life Confidential. It's time to hear your voice. Call into our program today at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to Ken at GreenGateLeadership.com. Now, back to Work Life Confidential. Here again is Ken Dolan Del Vecchio. Well, welcome back. Sadly, Professor Wolf had to go to yet another interview, but we were privileged to have him, and hopefully we'll have him back before too long. So much richness in what he had to say, and I loved his parting comments about the importance of having both a political and an economic democracy, having both, that they are interwoven and that the future looks brighter for that kind of a system which will bring more equality and more benefits to all of us. I want to talk very, very briefly about that idea that if we have more equality, we don't have to look at it as though some are going to lose at the other's expense. I've talked previously on the program about different ways to understand power. And we live in, certainly in capitalist systems, we live in a power over structure where having power means the right to dominate and dictate the activities of others. It means that there is a fixed amount of power in the world. And so if one group is gaining power, then it must be at the expense of another. And we see this in some of the movements for social justice that continue and thankfully have gained much ground in the past 50 plus years. So there was a sense when when the women's movement began to pick up energy in the 1970s, that somehow we men were going to lose something, and the civil rights movement, that white people are going to lose something. If we can understand that we can all gain together, there's an abundance to be gained when we all gain standing, when we gain economic security. That's a message that I think is so important to repeat. And Another point that I want to make as part of the wrap-up to this conversation is that it's very important for us to be ready to step into uncomfortable conversations. So when I mentioned the word Marxism at the beginning of this discussion, I hope that you were able to hold that word feel the discomfort, and ask yourself, why? Why is an idea so uncomfortable? And can we look at that and look at it critically? Because certainly Marxism is not where we're headed. It is, it is, it is another idea that exists outside the the structure of capitalism, and it gives some great possibilities, but all of 
these systems need to be critically evaluated. And so the last point that I want to stress is the importance of critical thinking, the importance of allowing ourselves to think things through, to ask questions, to not feel like we have to go with one way, one school of thought or another, but to use our intellect and to understand that what we think and feel is valuable and valid. I used to travel every other week. I would drive between Massachusetts and Newark, New Jersey. My primary office was in Newark, and I would sometimes work remotely from my home in Massachusetts. And I'd often be driving and listening to a radio broadcast, perhaps similar to this one. And I was I was doing that one time, and I was listening to a dialogue where a host was talking to one of his callers. And the caller said, and it was just before the last election. And the caller said, I listened to this media broadcast outlet, and I don't, I don't agree with what they're saying. And then I listened to this other media broadcast outlet, and I don't agree what they're saying either. And there was a bit of a pause, and the host said, well, I guess that means that you are going to have to come to your own Decision. You're going to have to come to your own perspective on these issues that are before us. Can you do that? And there was a very long pause. And then the man said, and I kid you not, he said, no. No, I can't do that. And my message to everyone with an earshot is, don't let this happen to you. You have an intellect. You have lived experience. We all do. And we deserve to encounter the world and the various, sometimes highly contrasting ideas about how to live, how to structure our communities, how to structure our work lives. We deserve to critically evaluate them, come to our own perspectives, which may in fact be quite different from some of the media outlets that are screaming at us <laughs> from the poles of political thought. And so that's my, that's my fervent hope, that we will use our ability to evaluate, to assess, to make judgments. And furthermore, if we do that, not only will we be able to navigate conflicts in a way that is civil and that actually brings us closer together, not farther apart, but we will create for our kids a path to better lives because the world is complicated and we need to bequeath to our kids, we need to give to our kids through our role modeling and through our conversations with them, the notion and the belief that they can formulate their own opinions, their judgments as they're maturing are important and that the world that they inherit is one that they should approach 
thoughtfully and collaboratively, bridging differences, accepting new ideas and evaluating them with their colleagues, with their peers. It's been a great pleasure being with you today and having this conversation. I am thrilled to let you know that next week we will have with us Professor Jeffrey Pfeffer. He is a professor at the Stanford Graduate School of Business and his most recent book, he like Professor Wolf is the author of many, many books. His most recent book is Dying for a Paycheck, How Modern Management Harms Employee Health and Company Performance and What We Can Do About It. Fred Rogers said, the legendary Mr. Rogers said, if it's mentionable, it's manageable. My wish is that together we'll continue to break silences, to talk about the important stuff that goes unsaid, find solutions together where necessary, and move forward with clarity, calm, safety, and all the other good things that life can bring. Join us next week. I'm Ken Dolan Del Vecchio. You've been listening to Work Life Confidential. I'd like to thank our executive producer, Randall Libero, and our engineer, Josh. And thank you so much for being with us, as always. Have a wonderful week. Thank you for listening to Work Life Confidential with Ken Dolan Del Vecchio. We hope you've taken a bit of wisdom from today's program that will help you at work and home. Be sure to join us again next Monday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time and 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. And have an outstanding week.